Welcome to episode 79 of the Nutanix Community Podcast with Dwayne Lesnar and Angelo Luciani. Let's get started. This week on the podcast, I speak with Rohit Goyle and Will Fulmer. Will is a Nutanix technology champion and someone who does a lot of work with folks in the legal industry. I thought we'd talk about how COVID is impacting the legal industry, how the shift to work from home and supporting a distributed workforce has changed traditional thinking, how document management has changed, and a whole lot more. So with that, let's join the conversation. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. Good to have Rohit and Will on today. How are you guys doing? Doing great. Thank you for asking. Yeah, doing great, Angelo. Thanks for having us. I know that both of you have done a lot of work in the legal industry and wanted to get your thoughts and insights on what you're seeing and how things have changed with COVID. And maybe you can start first, Will. Sure. Um, you know, at the end of February, I was out in Las Vegas at the Nutanix Global Tech Summit. And it was only, you know, a couple of days later upon flying home when stuff in the United States really started unfolding. Um, and this work from home, work during pandemic scenario started to really um, happen throughout the U.S. And I kind of believe that the impact of this virus and the outbreak is really going to be one of those events that really forever changes the way that many people work. Um, a lot of our customers, as you mentioned, are in the legal vertical. Um, and in the law firm, you know, paper is the product of their business. Um, attorneys and staff report to offices and their job is to, to output paper. And for organizations that were looking to move to a paperless office, it's a challenge. There are, I've seen decades of paper just sitting in these massive file rooms. Um, there's binders that are full of old documents and microfiche. And years of case data sitting on tapes and paper records. And now without any ability to report to offices, many law firms out there have had to cut and furlough staff. They've had to cut short their summer associate programs. Um, there's a lot of people that are not able to do their job without being in the office. And I think that COVID has really accelerated the timeframes for firms to move to a digital work from anywhere you know, methodology. And I've had a number of conversations with CIOs and CEOs out there managing partners. And they've basically said, you know, I don't plan to return to the office or I never see myself working five days in the office again. And I think that what we're seeing today is really going to be an accelerant for the practice of law really leaving the physical building. That's a, that's a, some really good points there, Will. It's funny because when I was working for, you know, one of these legal firms uh, out in the Boston area, I remember walking in every morning and you walk by some of these attorney's offices and you see those stacks of paper you're talking about. They were just buried in them. <clears throat> and I was always shocked at, like, how much content uh, they had to consume, you know, for these cases. But one of the things that I found, uh, you know, in recent studies is that nobody really knows how long this is going to last. And there's a, there's a survey out there by Morrison Forrester, basically includes 110 in-house general counsel attorneys. And what they do in 
the studies, they figure out the average impact of COVID on corporations. Um, and they're saying it's a 7.1 out of 10, where 10 is the most severe impact. This is, this is causing in-house counsel, general counsels to shift their, their priorities and their mindset because the severity and the impact, you know, may or may not decrease uh, in the short period of time. So what, what the study goes on to say is that 63% of the respondents have an increase in, in workload due to COVID. And the priorities aren't the same. Uh, they have to actually adapt. So there are really a lot of implications to this. Legal firms have, will have to watch and react to how COVID is causing you know, changes in their clients. For example, according to the report, many of those uh, you know, general in-house counsels are being asked to focus on employment and human resources and contracts. And maybe they don't have expertise in these areas. So that's really challenging for the attorneys. So you know, this is causing legal firms to really think, rethink their strategies and adapt to focus on clients and needs, which means that they must be agile across the board. And, you know, firms are looking to see how they can actually reduce some of those costs and putting together strategies on how to handle the pandemic, knowing that these effects could last longer than the next quarter. What does this mean for like these IT teams? And it really means that they have to be agile. They have to be up for this challenge and they have to be able to rethink, you know, infrastructure solutions to quickly enable those remote workers, consolidate data center costs and enable new services without having those disruptions. Right. Uh, are there any special challenges facing the legal industry with working from home, Will? Yeah, that it's very interesting. I think remote work, the remote user used to sort of be the the exception to the rule. And it was very easy to spin up some sort of um, quick and dirty remote access solution that sort of just got the job done. But I think what the law firms are seeing, much to Rohit's point, you know, um, the with people working from home, it does have to be somewhat as business as usual as much as possible. Um, I mean, we saw the Supreme Court um, you know, holding its oral arguments over the phone a month ago and somebody in the background had like a toilet flushing, right? These are sort of almost becoming the norms. But I think what in the law firm experience, you know, now that there is um, cases that have to be tried, there are expert witnesses and um, testimonies that have to be taken, you know, there's a need for this remote access to not only be um, secure, but that that end user experience can produce the same content that they could produce in the office. So in-person um, witnesses may not be possible anymore. So the need for quality audio and video is essential. Um, you know, I think we're seeing really two challenges from this work from home or this work during pandemic scenario. One, you know, the user experience, um, that end user experience still is paramount. Um, especially in the law firm world where slow is the new down. Um, if it takes users a long time to log in, if their connections are unstable or they don't, they're not able to produce a good work product, you know, they're losing hundreds upon thousands of dollars an hour. Um, and when people are now sitting in front of these screens for eight and 12 hour days, um, users are going to find some way to basically circumvent the system that IT created for them. And I think the other sort of, you know, 
thing that's happening out there is there are organizations um, that are trying to empower their users to work. Um, I've heard of stories of some large law firms that their IT staff has gone into the building and gathered towers and started FedExing towers out to uh, attorneys' homes um, and trying to figure out how to connect them back to the office. And there is a data sprawl, data leakage that's happening. You know, and now there's this scenario where scope data um, is existing on non-governed devices. And those devices are a risk, um, you know, from a legal standpoint, from a discovery standpoint, this is a nightmare for IT teams. And I think there's a big battle going on with the IT teams of these organizations now about VDI versus VPN and how can they best accommodate their workforce to both be productive, but also have an experience that is tolerable. Yeah, I, I really think, uh, you know, you bring up some really good points there, Will. Uh, I remember, you know, one of the scenarios where we're sitting at this remote location and, you know, the attorneys that we had at the remote location weren't the experts on, on a certain topic. Uh, but what, you know, the attorneys wanted was somebody at, you know, one of our other locations to be able to look at the video of a deposition that happened and they wanted to be able to, you know, analyze this all over the network. And, you know, I think, you know, back then, maybe, you know, VDI wasn't the solution, but now since it, since it is out there and it makes things for working remotely that much easier, especially with all the graphics processing and capabilities, these attorneys can get really, uh, you know, a lot of work done while they're remote. So working from home is definitely not as easy as we've we've all been kind of thrown into that scenario now um, and, and try to build a routine out of it. The other part is what you outlined. It's about having the right access. Some firms may not even have remote desktop solutions, or maybe they thought about deploying one, but they don't know how to get started. There, there are a couple options out there where, where you can do things on premises with infrastructure, and there's ones that you can run in the cloud. Um, the idea is to, you know, get ahead of it. And one major way of choosing the right ar architecture that allows you to do those capabilities when, when you're faced with times like these. And it's really about having a flexible data center solution that allows you to kind of add these kinds of apps that uh, run easily, they run reliably without downtime. And it's all about the software that's gonna stand there with you during these pandemics. And to your second point there, where you're talking about VDI versus VPN, I think, I think it's an important discussion. Uh, legal teams need access to these documents uh, throughout the throughout case data, and maybe they're reviewing some legal briefs, but they need it to be simple and it has to work. You're 100% you're right. It has to work across all the, all the different devices. Um, with, you know, VDI makes it easy to do, do those things, uh, but it goes back to having the right architecture um, to be able to deal with, you know, can you imagine being able to, you know, dealing with traditional infrastructure where you have to buy these servers and network and storage and virtualization all separately, and and you're trying to, you know, adapt to this pandemic, and then you're trying to deal with the, these technologies all at the same time. It's it's going to be a little bit overwhelming, and the changes change happens so fast. And if you haven't looked at HCI you know, or hyperconverged infrastructure, I think it, you should look at it and see how easy it is to manage while reducing those security threats and really improve, 
improving those overall efficiencies. I don't know anyone who's ever said that they don't want to reduce complexity. No, it's a great point. You know, I think especially nowadays, you know, I don't think anybody is out there voluntarily um, trying to get back into their organization's data center. You know, nobody wants to be replacing bad disk drives if something fails. I mean, I think the concept of like the, the disk redundancy, the dual disk parity, the, the concept that multiple disks could take down an environment, you know, now more so than ever, people need environments that are resilient, they're scalable, they can do everything that they need from wherever they are. And that that concept of going back to the office, not only to produce the work product, but also for, you know, in the law firm environment, IT is not, um, IT is overhead, right? IT is not the one that's making money in the firm. Um, and that's kind of an unfortunate position to kind of think of IT like that, but they are first responders, you know, they are responsible for keeping the lights on and keeping the business operational. Um, and sometimes it's a thankless job, but having infrastructure, like you mentioned, that is capable of staying up, regardless of various faults that may happen during this time. I mean, that's, that's a huge win for these organizations that have accomplished that. Will, you have an interesting story of how Nutanix helped you while you were out with the family. Can you share that? Yeah, I mean, this was, uh, you know, happier times when we were able to get out and, and do some fun things. But I... Um, you know, I actually was out, um, this was many years ago, probably 2013, 2014. Um, I was actually getting ready to walk into um, Hershey Park, an amusement park for the day with my family for like a day of amusements and roller coasters. Um, one of my clients, you know, we got a notification that there was a problem in their environment. There was a critical piece of infrastructure down. Um, and, you know, this was a blessing in disguise. Um, I did not have to ruin the day. I did not have to spend the whole day on with support or trying to repair something. I was able from my phone to open a support case with Nutanix. I was able to open the remote um, support tunnel to Nutanix support. I contacted an engineer. They were able to come in remotely. They were able to address the issue. Um, I was able to spend the day with my family. So, you know, when my future customers asked me, why Nutanix? Why are we pitching Nutanix? Why do we advocate for Nutanix so much, you know, I tell them it's not, it's not me. It's my wife and kids that really like Nutanix. I'm able to spend the day with them and I don't have to be worried about one piece of infrastructure being down and it actually causing um, a full outage. And, and that's sort of peace of mind that not many people in technology have. You know, it brings up a really good point. Uh, when I think about, you know, looking at technology, I think we have to put some value on the NPS score. Uh, and we have to really think about, you know, what that means. When I was on the IT side for a law firm, we used some random calls to support before we bought some new equipment. Basically, it was our way to test the system out. Let's just say not all support solutions were the best. And we ended up weeding those vendors out based on that. And it was sad because we really liked the technology. But if the support wasn't there, it sounds like basically after you buy it, you're going to have a whole bunch of frustration, not just with you know the IT teams, but you're going to have it with frustration from the end users. Uh, so that those are your customers, and you really have to think about you know support after the fact. And, and I think that that's a great point. A couple other you know thoughts, you know, as many folks are looking at data center solutions, one is major thing I would consider it when reducing that complexity we keep talking about is that think of like the whole life cycle 
And, and, you know, Will's talking about these pieces and it's really important to just, you know, rationalize it in your own mind where when you're buying it to managing it, to supporting it, to scaling it, think about, you know, the whole process and the whole life cycle and how that part has to be that much easier for you. And then when you're thinking about like the, you know, putting this in infrastructure in place in the data center, think about like how you're going to reduce the rack space and the power and cooling, because you really don't want, you know, you know, whole racks of equipment when you don't need it. So you, you know, think again, just take time and think through the entire process all the way from like doing the research to ending, ending up in supporting it. Yeah, reducing data center complexity does come down to choosing the right architecture, doesn't it, Will? Absolutely. You know, I think every piece of technology now is is overly complicated. Um, you know, I think myself and my engineers, we sort of subscribe to that adage of hardware will fail and software will work, right? There's always going to be failure. Um, power supplies, disk drives, memories, everything has a shelf life. Um, but being able to sort of realistically live in a software-defined data center you know, that's what allows IT to become nimble and agile and the ability to mergers and acquisitions and linear, linearly scale environments um, or being able to, on a given weekend, convert an entire stack from one hypervisor to another, you know, instantly saving the organization tens of thousands of dollars in support renewals. I mean, those things are game changing. Those things can happen over the course of the weekend and it doesn't require months or years of planning and new platforms to migrate to um you know so these these maintenances these upgrades these now occur over weekends they're not daunting tasks it's one click and go and you know go off and enjoy yourself that nice little saturday the go to home depot go to home depot buy wallpaper get some flooring you know maybe bed bath and beyond i don't know i don't know if we'll have enough time <laughs> that's awesome yeah it's uh these are uh, all true facts, Will. It's funny because, um, you know, I would have given, you know, an arm or a leg to have an HCI solution when I was running, you know, at these data centers. I can't tell you the amount of times we had serious discussions on who's going to work, which maintenance window and what time is the right time, especially at the, at the law firm. We found that like attorney, we did this whole analysis. We had attorneys and legal staff and we mapped out when they were logging in, what the high points are, what the low points are. And we, we were like, man, the only time we can actually do this is is 2 a.m. on a Saturday morning to, and we have to be done by 7 a.m. on that Saturday morning. And the only time I was ever really happy was when I got home and I put my head down on the pillow. But you know what? I never felt like relieved at that time because, you know, you, you start playing the whole upgrade through your mind and and you're you're starting to worry that maybe you missed a step and you're waiting for that phone to go off with all those alerts and in that that's the tough part so when you're thinking about these HCI solutions and you're listening to like you know you know some of the stories Will's talking about where you can do upgrades easily you can really reduce those maintenance windows i think that's really a game changer and in terms of like, you know, software and silos, you're right. Hardware will fail and the, and the software is there to stand by you if you make the right choice. It's really all about, you know, what features you can enable when you need them. Uh, for example, let's, let's think about like how if you did start off with some sort of HCI solution and you wanted to add files or you want to add object storage, what would you do? 
you know, if you didn't have the right right infrastructure choice, you'd probably end up going buying discrete pieces of, of infrastructure and trying to put it all together. And, you know, that's that's all left up to you to figure out how it works. And then maybe you go and look for, you know, you're, you look at your team and you're like, does my team even have the expertise to manage that? And if they don't, how long is it going to take to ramp them up? And you quickly start to realize that this is going to get complicated real fast. No, absolutely. I think, you know, th- that's sort of where the HCI, um, you know, solutions have really enabled law firms to kind of be able to do a lot more with less, but also be able to do a lot more quicker. You know, I think what we see with law firms, right, is these mergers and acquisitions, they happen frequently. Um, and when you kind of consider the what runs at the the core of the law firm, right, it's documents. And these document management systems are massive. Um, and not only are the, the systems massive, but there's so many iterations of the same document. There's a a spreadsheet, and then there's a PDF of the spreadsheet, and then there's a Word document, and then there's a TIFF image and a OCR version of it. So you've got like 10 different versions of that same file out there. And if a case happens, that data may never be getting deleted um, because that case needs to be there and that history needs to stay around for archival purposes. And there's situations where new cases come in and there could be hundreds of terabytes um, being required to get ingested almost immediately into an environment. And without some sort of scalable architecture out there, you know, it's it's that. It's that purchasing of hot dogs and hot dog buns, right, in inequal portions where we need some more storage. We need, need another shelf of disk. Okay, we have a shelf of disk. Now we need more service to power that infrastructure. And it becomes this, um, you know, balance of purchasing that happens where, having something that can predict when you're end when you're going to run out of runway and what you need from a capacity st- planning standpoint i mean these are huge benefits that certain firms have where they can scale the it infrastructure to whatever that business need is yeah it, it's funny um, you brought back some really interesting memories of working with those lit support uh, departments and the fear was whenever they opened up you know some requests to add more storage or more you know, requirements on on the network. And they wanted, you know, more space because what they got was a whole boatload of, you know, case data that they were going to, you know, uh, bring onto the network and put it, you know, into the storage systems. And, and our fear was, look, we, we're trying to keep as nimble as possible, but it's hard because you, you can't predict what's going to happen. And the reason that those predictions are tough is because law firms are structured a little bit differently you know, a lot of folks don't realize it, but, you know, I'm sure you do, Will, where you have that managing director who's like the CEO, and then you've got a lot of, uh, you know, folks underneath there who are partners, and they're like their own mini CEOs of their own organization, and, you know, they're running their business, and they have their attorneys and paralegal staff and, and whatnot, and and as they're building out their business, you know, they need some of these capabilities, so they use these shared resources. I just remember that, you know, at the firm, we ha- we also had this we had this drive on the network. We called it the dumping ground. <laughs> and everyone used that sort of, you know, that drive for storing all their documents. And most of the time, they ended up having duplicates of the same document over and over. And it was really disappointing to find out, you know, that, that that's how that drive was being used. But we just ended up running out of space. 
so we ran out of space and then we had our SAN admin. He, he basically went in and he looked at, looked at it and then he had to reshuffle things around. And the problem with that is that that SAN shared the same space as our Exchange server. And you couldn't just reshuffle things around without impacting email performance. So what's another solution? We went out and we, you know, we got some more hardware. We created another silo, but then we ran out of ports for like our SAN networking switch. So now we're like, oh my God, we got to go get another SAN networking switch. And and all of a sudden, the complexity just really gets out of con- out of control. And it would have been a lot easier if we had some sort of capability where you can easily scale this out without having to worry about scaling those independent pieces because it's really about that, right? It's about being able to scale uh, linearly without having to, you know, scale three, four, five components at a time. Right. As we see virtual desktops and desktops as a service becoming commonplace, how are you seeing folks adapting to that, Will? So, you know, VDI has sort of been kind of the bread and butter of what Helium my company has really been about since we kind of first came into existence. Um, you know, VDI has always been one of those four letter words where uh, it looks good when you deploy it to two users for a proof of concept and then maybe 50 for the pilot. And then either at 51 or 201 or 2001, the whole thing falls apart like a house of cards. Um, we've been big proponents for virtual desktops for a long time. Um, and early adopters with Nutanix really leveraging a lot of native Nutanix capabilities um, and its sweet spot for what it can do for VDI. And a lot of the law firms that we've worked with over years who were adopters of virtual desktops, um, they've managed through this pandemic from a technology standpoint really well. Um, You know, this went from one day users were working in the office, those next day the users were working in from home and they had the same desktop, the same applications, you know, and in some cases, um, the cursor was in the same spot where they left it when they left the office. So for, for those organizations, it was really business as, I guess, air quotes usual, um, you know, kind of given the, the new work environment. But, you know, the virtual desktops that we've been a part of helping deploy, ones that yield not just acceptable, but um, exceptional end user experience, they've wildly succeeded. Um, these firms have ubiquitous delivery of their desktops on any device, firm owned or BYO. Um, And people are accessing them across all form factors, laptops, desktops, tablets, phones. Um, You know, in legal, there's been for a long time, really an aversion to cloud. Um, But I think there's becoming uh, a tolerance where things like desktops as a service are starting to become acceptable options. Um, You know, that ability to instantly provision a few hundred or a few thousand desktops on demand, especially nowadays, that's an attractive proposition. You know, whether that's for production computing resources or simply standby and disaster recovery machines. But I think it's something that we've seen a lot of firms beginning to adopt uh, and they've had a lot of success in it. Yeah, I mean, I I can't imagine, you know, the world without it these days. It seems like, you know, VDI has really opened up a lot of lot of great use cases and and with this pandemic it's kind of accelerated even more. Um but it, I, again, it goes to me like it's, it's exactly what you talk about that 
these attorneys or legal staff, uh, they're basically looking for, you know, a ubiquitous way to, to access these documents. And one interesting, you know, way to, you know, think about this is, is to look at other legal firms like Loeb and Loeb, for example, they worked with uh, Heliant and Nutanix um, and really were one of our first customers who took the step towards HCI and they seem to have loved it, right? Uh, they're, you know, they've got testimonials all over the place, which is pretty interesting. And they run their data center, you know, a lot of it on Nutanix. Um, and it's been game changing in terms of like their simplicity, ease of use and overall management. And, you know, these firms are, are starting to see the value in, in reducing uh, all this complexity that they're, you know, they're used to and seeing how they can be a little bit more nimble and start to think more about that business logic problem of, you know, where, where you're thinking about these little CEOs who, uh, who manage, you know, their own business and how they can be flexible enough to be able to adapt to those CEOs and, you know, whatever requests they have. One of the, one of the other interesting topics, you know, out there, Will, is, is around security. And a lot of folks, you know, think of security as kind of like the perimeter security. And, and I used to, you know, uh, manage security for a pretty large financial company. And it's interesting because we did, we spent a fair bit of time creating these perimeter firewalls and we used multiple technologies because we didn't trust a single one. And we created these layers within it. But we never really thought too much about the east-west firewalls, you know. And I think, you know, when thinking about law firms, um, two thoughts come to mind. One is how do we how do we protect things? It, you know, if somebody breaks in, and how do we protect them? You know, to be siloed so that they're not going in, and and you know, once they're in, and they're getting access to everything, uh, so that they get kind of quarantined off. And then two, the other thing that I've, I've seen, especially at law firms, is that they are attacked, you know, uh, attacked by, you know, lots of folks. And the reason for it is that their client data could be these, you know, large financials. It could be anybody, retailers. Um, and why, you know, these law firms are getting attacked is because these people want access to that data. So what are your, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, it's 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 a very interesting time. I mean, you know, I think in the in the legal environment, there is a little bit of security through obscurity. Um, there's because the focus of the law firm has sort of always been that output and the billable hour. Um, there's always been a hesitation for security because it's going to impact productivity, and sometimes productivity always won out. Um, it was for the longest time, it was the ability to add a second form of authentication beyond a password. Um, and then to your point, yeah, the the external perimeter scans are sort of what kind of was able to appease a lot of the auditors. But there is a lot of that east-west traffic that is of a lot of concern. Um, I think that there is, you know, there's, like you mentioned, there's, there's a good reason why a lot of law firms... Um, for really bad reasons, end up becoming on the the front page of the New York Times. Um, you know, when there is a breach or a hack, um, this is happening all the time, right? There was the 
malicious activity that happened at TravelX, the, the money exchanging company back in January. Um, there was a number of law firms throughout the first half of this year that have been breached and client data that was exfiltrated because of the nature of the sensitive data that these firms hold. Um, to this week, Honda Motors having a ransomware incident that shut down all production facilities in North America. Um, you know, without that visibility into the network um, and being very explicit around the types of communication that can occur, um, there's a lot of possibility for vulnerabilities to exist. There's a lot of possibility for those vulnerabilities to be exploited. And I think, you know, as it pertains to the legal vertical, um, because of kind of all those reasons I mentioned, and because of the fact that they hold a lot of important data for many financial institutions, entertainment industries, you know, they tend to be um, where a lot of these malicious actors, um, whether by technical nature or um, using social ways to engineer their ways into these environments, um, they tend to be some of the first points of attack. And having visibility um, into that east-west traffic, being able to instantly shut down malicious traffic, these things are becoming more and more commonplace. And I think back to some discussions we had a few minutes ago around, you know, complex architecture. Um, you know, when engineers spend all their time worrying about speeds and feeds and port counts and hooking up new hardware, that takes away from you know, focusing on what's most important to the business, which is focusing on the applications, the users, and really the security and integrity of all of that data um, and what's most important to the organization. Yeah, and I couldn't I couldn't agree more. You know, I think, you know, one of the things you're, you're spot on there is that there are these audits, and I don't think everyone's aware of them, but basically uh, legal firms typically have these audits that are done by you know, uh, one of their clients to make sure that you have the right security postures in place. And, you know, my thought here is that instead of only relying on whatever the client wants you to do in terms of, uh, you know, your security posture, I think legal firms should start thinking about how they can, you know, adopt these practices and make them better and uh, have them as standard practices going forward. Great. Thanks so much, Will and Rohit, for joining us today and sharing your thoughts with the community. Hope to have you back on the podcast real soon. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to check out all the great content on the Nutanix community at next.nutanix.com. There you'll find our community blog, updates on Nutanix user groups, and of course, Nutanix certification and education information. So with that, from your friends here at Nutanix, have a great week.